0: So we left off right around the end of chapter 5, so uh, just a couple last minute thoughts here. I wanted to clean up chapter chapter 5, but you know, we've been talking out think where we've been. We had a nation that went against God, went their own way, did their own thing, and then when they got beat in a battle, picked God up and expected God to come to the rescue and save them. Well, God's not a real big fan of that, and refused to help them, and they got slaughtered. So God's waiting for for something from these people. We're going to discover tonight what what that something is. But the, the, the point I want to make is that obviously from this testimony and throughout all the pages of scripture, God has no problem with allowing a person or an entire nation be defeated when that person and nation reject God. God is not going to reward bad behavior. That's good parenting, right? God is our parent so God was really responsible for the Israelites getting defeated in a battle he just pulled out and said I'm not helping you so they blamed God and I guess you could look at it that way it really was God's fault but God was definitely responsible for knocking the, the, the false God Dagon over twice right that was fun second time knocked his head and his hands off Right? you're powerless now buddy I got this So you need to understand what the Philistines Boy, you guys are lousy, lousy, lousy. See, they are trying to incorporate God into the religion alongside Dagon. They knew God had incredible power, but they weren't willing to put Dagon aside. Let's face it. God did not help them win either of those two battles. In their way of thinking, Dagon helped us do that. Right? Right? that's the god we believed in so he helped us do it so we can't get rid of dagon but we will assimilate this jewish god into our god and that's why they put them side by side and god doesn't like that at all i mean it's one thing to reject god entirely but the thing that really sets God off is when you take God, because it obviously proves you understand God at least a little bit, you take God and you add something else to God. As if to say, God, you were not good enough. The the Jews did that repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Time after time after time. it's about every other generation did it. Because as soon as the first drought came along... And they prayed to God, Oh, God, make it rain. And within five minutes, if God doesn't make it rain, they said, well, our neighboring nation, they've got fertile crops and everything. Their God must really be working for them. So we'll incorporate some of that. We still love you, God. Oh, we still love you. But we're just going to add to you because you ain't good enough. And that's what God really pulls out. You're on your own. And what we're experiencing now in this culture, that's the end result of it all so God obviously is still in control but God's going to do it his way so the Philistines are not technically worshipping God they are worshipping continuing to worship Dagon who helped them defeat this God but they know that this God has power so they're going to try and incorporate that into their own religion they will not accept God as God and again I will say they are not that bright. They keep making a lot of really, really bad decisions. So what they did here in chapter five, they tried to bring God in, God you know destroyed Dagon, that idol they had, and brought big tumors growing all over these people. Again, I mean they're not internal tumors. These are tumor they didn't understand the internal. So these are big, gross, I mean, softballs growing on your arm or on your chest, coming out of your forehead, you know, black. And then, as if it's not bad enough, these tumors killed you. People are dying left and right by the thousands. Wipe out a whole city. Well, we better move it to another city. (laughs) Wipe that city out. Let's try again, shall we? They move it to a third city. Wipe that city out. The last verse in chapter 5. Those who, who did not die were afflicted with tumors. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So th- this is similar now to the Egyptians. With after uh, multiple plagues. It was about plague number 6. That just about everybody in Egypt got it. Our Pharaoh is a knucklehead. He has no idea what he's doing. And, he, and worse yet he has no power. But this God of this, this guy Moses... There's the power. Everyone knew it. But Pharaoh refuses to relent and forced him to go through more of these plagues until finally the firstborn in every every family died. These people, these Philistines are in that same situation. They're finally, they're figuring out. And again, the time frame, it took them seven months. 6-1 took them seven months. Well, I think I'd have figured it out in three. <laughs> it wouldn't take me three cities; it'd only take me two. I I'd, I'd probably figured that out too. But like I say, they're not that bright. So there you go. Last thoughts on chapter five, because chapter six is in, is pretty cool. But wait, wait till we get to chapter seven. Oh man, this is a big one. What do you think about chapter five? I guess you're ready for the excitement. Chapter 6. Now, seven months, they keep playing around with this. Finally, verse 2, after seven months, three cities, thousands of deaths, everyone with tumors, now after seven months, they are willing to go to their priest, their Dagon priest, and inquire what in the world is going on. What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? See? See? they're smart enough to realize God's doing this as soon as we brought this thing into us that's when all the trouble started tell us how we should send it back to its place they're finally figuring out we've got to get this out of the country it's, it's, it's wiping us out now look, look at the response of the, the, the priest of Dagon what do you think of their answer Verse three Sounds like they're trying to buy God. Say some more. Well, they're offering him gold to pay for their forgiveness. So. Okay? So there's a, an aspect of, you know, pacifying this God with with money because you know that's what God's like. Okay? What what else do you, do you think of their answer? Good answer, bad answer? Look at the first word of their answer. If. So they're really not sure either. <laughs> I mean, we're coming to you because you're supposed to be the wise guys here. And they say, well, if you do this, then okay. it <laughs> just kind of really just... Not really getting into it here. Make some gold tumors and some gold rats, right? How do you make a gold tumor? (laughs) Who would want one? Exactly. What do you want for Christmas, honey? I want a gold tumor for my charm bracelet. Seemed very disrespectful to me. Say some more about that. Just, I mean... If anybody gave me a rat, I would be very <laughs> offended. Even Seems a gold great. one. Even a gold one. No, I don't care what it, it is. <laughs> it. I would be offended. Seriously. You'll never guess what you get for Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's worse than a golden calf, I think. Yeah, really just amazing but yeah it, it, but again showing they, they just don't get it I mean it's it's so clear what God is doing but they still aren't putting those those those, those dots very very close together they, they just don't know what the, what they're doing here but remember now again there's a lot of similarities with with Egypt and Pharaoh. Pharaoh did the same thing Pharaoh hardened his heart. He refused to understand what was so plain in front of him. But these Dagon priests do advise, be contrite, and when he says "you know," make these offerings because they knew what God demanded for a sacrifice. So give this God what, what he demands of his own people. Do that. But I find it interesting, however, that the the priest still proposed a final test to prove that all this calamity that came upon him was, in fact, from God. Remember the test? You know, get two oxen and put it on there, and if the oxen go this way, then it proves this is from God. Pretty neat. And, of course, that's exactly what the the oxen did. So, the Philistines certainly understand by now this is God and they could not defeat the God of the Israelites so make five gold tumors and five gold rats so they come up with this elaborate plan and they actually call it a guilt offering in verse 8, verse 9 verse 8 which is a Jewish term and they send some spies to keep watching until they get into enemy territory and then realize, well, we can't, can't follow any any further. Verse 10, so they did this. So the plan actually is a pretty good plan. They just were unsure about it and thought they'd throw one, one more test in just to make extra extra sure. Now drop down to verse 19. God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Now this these are Jewish dudes again, right? It's back, back in Jewish territory and now God has struck down 70 Israelites because they looked into the ark. So we need to get in mind now what 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 this ark is. They looked inside. What? What was inside the ark? An olive branch. An olive branch. That Moses' stick, staff. Moses' staff. But it sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. Manna. Some leftover manna because they had lots of that. Take manna. Just hit you like a ton of bricks, huh? Yes, primarily it's the housing of the Ten Commandments, which is was first of all written with the finger of God, and again Cecil B. really did a good good job with that, right? So the finger of God wrote this, and they cut it out of the rock and and you know, took it down, and they you know Moses threw it and broke it, so got to do it in another version of it. <laughs> so that was. A, a, what God wrote down that he wants his people to do so it's like looking at God in their way of thinking so apparently 70 of them decided well we got it back I'm going to look inside this baby and see what, what it is well again just like Indiana Jones you open that puppy up a world of hurt coming your way do you remember what Indiana Jones said to whoever the girl was tied up to him he told her not to do one thing Don't open your eyes. Don't you know? So we're we're safe. We're not part of this. God knows that, but you're not supposed to be looking at this. If God's coming out of that box, you don't want to see it because He's going to take you out too. So just just incredible power. Like I say, they, everybody knows this. But everybody still remembers all those Egyptian stories. So it's abundantly clear what they're dealing with. So they not only touched it by opening it, but they looked inside of it. Again, wanting, wanting to know the, the mysteries of God. I can see God in this box. If I can see God, I can understand God, and I will have the wisdom of God. It's much like the Garden of Eden. Isn't that what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with? Eat this fruit, and you will know what God knows. We would love to do that, wouldn't we? That'd be awesome. But God is God. We have to allow God to be God. Jeff, Good. Earlier, when the Israelites touched the ark because it's going to fall off, they yes. Death, these Philistines had to pick up the ark to get it onto the cart. Why weren't they stricken death? Because, because I can... See very clearly in scripture that God only holds us accountable for what we know. Okay. And they didn't know. And even if he did strike anybody dead, they wouldn't have figured it out. sounds okay. logical. Yeah. Do you have something? Yes. Go. See, verse 3. 3. Verse 3. It's the only place that God is not capitalized. So they did not believe that this was Yes. The, Good point. God. Right. Yeah, from so this the was some other god to them. I think we're coming up, yes, on a on a place here in just a few verses where, yeah, you know, they their their concept of, of of God is he's just one of many. You know, it's it's and even then there might not even be a hierarchy; they're all equal. They're just just gods. Um, now, again, the uh, ancient Greeks and Romans had a hierarchy of gods, You had a main God, and then a whole bunch of secondary lieutenants and and all of that that were pretty powerful and all. But yeah, you know, overall, it's just a hodgepodge of gods and it would if, if you're going to have two gods who in the right might would stop there if two gods is great four gods is awesome I mean, that's why Justin and I th- uh, think of S- Subway uh, oatmeal raisin cookies <laughs> two's really good but four oh come on I mean that's just the best night ever there it's <laughs> still eating, right? So, it's it it's almost logical for in our human way of thinking to to, to look at it that way. If you if you can convince yourself that one the true God is not good enough, then you're going to add a whole bunch more, till you finally wind up in in India with the Hindus and thirty six thousand gods. I probably don't need that. A thousand gods would probably do it for me. Thirty-six is probably a little excessive, but that's just me. But that actually makes sense in in, in a way. So these guys wanted to see God. We finally got him back, and again, coming out of that period of which no one considered God, everyone did it as he saw fit. So they have no understanding of God. They just okay, I'm going to look in there. But see, God rose. God's holding them accountable because they they know this, but they chose to forget. And God God doesn't let it let us get away with, with, with planned ignorance. He's, he's not, not a big fan of that. So that verse 19 demonstrates that it's not the Israelites who control God. They're not really in control of the ark. But this story is about God demonstrating that He is, here's your big word of the day, sovereign. God is in control over not just the ark, not just over Israel, but of all of creation. But in particular, Israel and apparently now the Philistines as well. Go to verse 20. Now, God's people are so removed from God that they don't even know what to do with the ark now that they have it back again. Is that not unbelievable? See, a couple generations of just no contact with God whatsoever. This is what you have. You know this is God, but you don't know what to do with it. We forgot. Now, do you see any value then with Jesus at the Last Supper saying to the disciples, Remember me when you do this, when you break bread. I mean, we need the rehearsal. We need the remembrance. So we, we can't say that, you know, go for 50 years and think, I'll, I'll remember how to do that. I'm not sure if you haven't ridden a bike in 50 years, you're still going to remember how to do it. They say it's like, like riding a bike, but eh, it's going to take a couple minutes. To get that balance back, to, to get all that back together again. All the better to keep rehearsing it day after day after day. But these guys had forgotten for generations. And now the family of Eli had died. They were useless. So what did they do? They placed the ark of God on a rock. <laughs> now, they, they weren't smart enough to remember what God required. God requires a a habitation, a tabernacle it was called back in the day. They finally built a temple and all that, but a house for God. That's why the sanctuary is called the sanctuary. A sanctuary is the home. God's home. Now we know God's all around, but somehow we we feel closer to God in the sanctuary. They weren't even smart enough to realize that. They left God out in the rain for twenty years, <laughs> and nobody was able to say anything. They just, I don't know what to do with this thing's heavy. Ah, drop, drop it here, <laughs> and they did. But because they showed so little care for it, the Israelites too receive a plague upon them, and people start dying as as a result. So that's chapter 6 the fun starts in chapter 7 any last any thoughts in chapter 6 uh, Jeff, Go ahead. in Hebrews 9 it says uh, the ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that it budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. the big three interesting it would be three isn't it mm-hmm. yep so the, those tablets had to be pretty heavy I mean made out of stone jeez plus all the gold and jewels around the ark itself, that thing would have really, really had a couple pounds to it. Any other thoughts? Chapter 7. Quick review. Look where we've been. God's people abandoned God. Everyone saw, did as he saw fit. Even the priest and his sons, the ones responsible for maintaining the presence of God in this this country, let it go. They're guilty of apathy and pure evil. So all of that together creates an even greater religious void among God's people. God's people get into a battle lose the battle and eventually realize we ought to take God with us. They don't ask God if he wants to go. They just pick him up and haul him into battle. God allows them to lose terribly because God will not allow himself to be manipulated. And so he even allows himself to be captured by the enemy. Now, at this point of seemingly hopelessness, you should be asking yourself the question with his people his people not just random people his people so utterly abandoning God will God abandon them stay tuned for the sermon this Sunday on faithfulness if I was God I would (laughs) have just saying right? You probably would too. Why? You don't want me? I don't want you. I'll go find somebody else. That's what any of us would have said. But not our God. Because this God is faithful and true. And God expects us to grow and to, and to, and to remain faithful ourselves. So scripture says that God disciplines those he loves. And part of that discipline is when we choose to abandon him, God says, Okay that's the punishment God allowing us to walk away from him but do do you see how God is disciplining these disobedient teenagers this is a great strategy with teenagers write this down even though the people made a lot of major mistakes they sinned greatly God doesn't abandon them and God simply waits patiently For them to repent and return. And remember last week I asked you, after the first battle, what what should they have done? You finally got it. Repent. After the second battle, they lost the ark. They should have repented. They didn't do it then. So here's God waiting and waiting and waiting. That's what God is waiting for. For nothing else. Nothing else will, will suffice at this point. They must repent. So here in seven four, circle that verse because here now we see God's people repenting. They put away their false idols and choose to worship the one true God. They put away their Baals. Baal was a god of the couple of the neighboring nations, and was a. I mean, back in ancient times, well, probably the the biggest false god around the Israelites had a lot of trouble with those who worship Baal put away your Baals and your asterisks those symbols of these other religions that you have integrated into the true God that you should know better not to do so finally they get there but go back to verse 2 The ark is simply kept at Kiriath-Jerim. It's guarded. So it's on a rock. Let's put a guard in front of it. How about an umbrella? (laughs) How about a little lean-to or something? Nope, just going to leave God sitting out there, but we'll put a guard there. No tabernacle is built. The Israelites still do not understand what they have. And for 20 years, They're keeping God at this distant point in the nation. God's on the outskirts. But again, the patience of God, 20 years to us sounds like a long time. God's willing to wait. So they're starting a little bit to take a step in the right direction. They're starting to talk about God a little bit. Now, it does not say at this point the people mourned and and were sorry for their sin. We're getting there. But now for the next 20 years, Samuel grows older and starts taking over the religious helm of Israel. And Samuel's job is to bring them back into right relationship with God. So what we see is God not holding a grudge but simply giving the people time to really understand who he is. And then finally, after 20 years, Samuel will lead them to true repentance. Now, verse 3. Really important. Massively important. If you are returning to the Lord... That's why we said last week, you know, it's forgiveness is the second part. We want to go to forgiveness. We like forgiveness. But the first, you can't get the forgiveness until you repent. Until you look at the, in the mirror and say, I have sinned. I am ready to return to the Lord. If you never left, you don't have to return, right? So by definition, if you're turning, means you're out doing your own thing. But when you finally get smart and realize, now I need to return to the Lord, I need to repent, that's when God's ear perks up. And that's when, as we will see, incredible things start to happen. It's simply a recognition of the need to turn back to God. It's, it's an understanding that we realize God is not the one who left me. I am the one who left God it's a huge difference so repenting means that we acknowledge sin we confess the sin and then we make an effort to forsake that sin we say to God I will not sin like that again you can't go out and murder somebody ask for forgiveness and then say okay God I'm going to go do it again today but you better forgive me again so it's all about the intention and that's why repentance is first and foremost to return to God means that you've got to acknowledge the sin you've got to confess the sin you've got to name it and then you have to say I'm not going to do that again but once God gets that sense from us it becomes incredible. So, let's be clear. Yes, repentance is turning away from evil and sin. It is that. But, but, more importantly, it is the individual's designed purpose to specifically turn toward God. Just turning away from evil is not good enough. You see? And that's again the the intention, the motivation, the sincerity of your heart. And that's what God is looking for. So it's not like I will just turn away from God and I'll be a really good person. A lot of people do that. That doesn't work with God. It's I realize I have sinned. I will turn away from sin so that I can now face God. Because God alone And forgive me. And save me. So it's the the motivation that I need to turn toward God. That's what God waits for specifically. Now. Keep that page. Just to give you an example of this. Find the little prophet Joel. I will even have trouble finding it, I'm sure. He's just a little prophet in the back there somewhere right around Hosea. Yeah, if you can find Hosea, Joel is right afterwards. Uh, Joel is in between Hosea and Jonah, pretty near the end of your Old Testament. And Obadiah. Obi Wan Kenobi. (laughs) Find Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Now again this is the pattern I I would like to do an Old Testament study and be able to chart in number of years the faithfulness of the Israelites against the, the abandoning God probably a dead 50-50 split <laughs> you know, this many years of, of faithfulness and this many years of abandoning God it, it, it just it's a constant cycle so here many years later you know, the prophet Joel is sent because the Israelites are in the exact same boat they are with Samuel but look at, at 2, 12 and 13 Just this is just one of many examples of the heart of God reaching out to his people even now declares the Lord there's the formula again return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning rend your heart and not your garments return to the Lord your God for he's gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity so in other words if you don't return to God Calamity will befall you. right In this life and in the next. But here is God waiting for the people to return. So two times, two verses in a row. Return to me. Return to me. I'm just waiting for you to return to me. I'm right here. I need you to turn back around toward me. You're facing the wrong way. So it's not just lip service. It's not just, okay, God, I'll turn to you. God's looking for for, for that sincerity and that's why it's defined as that we are to come with all your heart a whole heart so repentance is not some mechanical formula it's not a, 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 a certain words or phrases you can use that will assuage God but instead God knows our hearts and he's waiting for us to fully return to him so Bible talks a lot about the whole heart don't we use the term wholeheartedly you don't want somebody to love you half heartedly do you that doesn't sound right so the whole heart now we need to understand the Jewish mindset in this so let me take you back in time because we well what's the symbol for Valentine's Day heart stupid wrong ridiculous because in a Jewish understanding of things the heart is not the, the the container for feelings so we're not talking about feelings here God doesn't want you coming with a whole heart of, of emotion whether that be joy, whether that be sorrow whether that be this, that, the, the emotion doesn't matter in the Jewish understanding of things, the heart is what we would call the brain the heart is where knowledge is kept Come to me with a whole heart. Come to me knowing who I am. God is pleading with these people. When you come with a whole heart, it is an intellectual experience, not an emotional experience. I I just can't stress enough that Scripture makes abundantly clear that we are not saved because of how we feel about Jesus. It doesn't matter. I just love Jesus because he died for me that makes me feel so good don't care means nothing what matters is you know that as a fact that's an intellectual experience not a heart experience knowledge doesn't change math guy numbers haven't changed have they Haven't added any new numbers. (laughs) Well, we went from (laughs) Roman. Yeah, (laughs) but still, it's numbers or numbers or numbers, right? I, 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 I. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah. But that's knowledge, you see. Knowledge doesn't change. Two plus two is still four. That doesn't. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. I don't like that. I think it should be three. Don't care. It's still four, right? That's the answer. That's a fact. And that's the relationship God wants with each one of us. Assured of the facts. Not depending on how you feel about it, because guess what? You'll feel differently tomorrow. God expects a consistent response from us. Knowledge doesn't change. The basis of our faith and truth are simply the facts of who God is and what God has done for us. Dems the facts. And that's what He wants us to know and to hold on to so think of it this way if your grown child moves away from home and calls you up on occasion and says someday I am going to return home for a visit but never comes would you feel good about that is that is that the same as having your child home with you repentance is the same the road to hell is paved with good intentions just thinking about repenting is not the same as repenting talking about repenting someday i really need to repent doesn't work either and that's what god is waiting for they're starting to get they're starting to turn but they have not designed themselves to turn toward God yet. It takes 20 years. So not until the child actually returns home will there be joy in that home. Not until we fully turn toward God will God consider what we're doing true repentance. Anything else short will not work. So God doesn't want lip service. Doesn't want you just using some magical words, or worse yet, you know, having the preacher pray for you and fixing things for you. This between you and God, don't get me in the middle of this. We have to return really. And what God expects is, and you can see it throughout scripture. They back in, in Samuel they get it. Here God is giving a prescription. You gotta do something. It's not just lip service. It's not just saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again. God expects you to have a tangible response. Some sacrifice, if you will. Rend your heart, not your garments. That was the classic Jewish sign when you're you're sorrowful, you tear your clothing. Whatever that means. He says, open your heart instead. That's what he expects of us. Return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Now fasting is an activity, right? Do that. Next month I'm going on another consultation weekend. And every consultation is required to include in the five Things that we insist you must do to, to fix the problems you're experiencing. There's always five. The first one is always. Pick a date and the entire church has to fast for a day. As a sign of your repentance for going your own way and doing your own thing and running this church into a ditch. You've got to show God you're serious about this. It's not just, well, I'll do it when I get around to it. You pick a day, and everybody's required to to do it. One or two people is not going to cut it. Because you see, Samuel, he gets it. But it wasn't good enough. Not until the entire nation universally gets it will God start doing miracles again. Please how in the world Samuel was raised by very much unchristian Eli and his sons and whatever, how did he? how figure that out? How did you do that? Out? See, that's that's the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's that's the Holy Spirit, right. That and, and that's why God holds us accountable for that, because you see, you know, being in a bad environment is not an excuse. You still have you know God in you. By the same token it's not if you if you're in a good home and you grow up good. It's not because you grew up in a good home. It's because you simply are willing to, to to accept the leadership of the Holy Spirit. It works. It works both ways. That's why it's it's universal, and that's why that's the unforgivable sin. Because we we're all in the same playing field at that point. Yeah, we look at it and say, oh, you had a hard life or something like that. Well, you're 40 years old. You're old enough to. I'm yeah, shrug that off and say, okay, I'm not going to allow that bad history to dictate who I am today. I can choose to choose to do better. And frankly, God expects us to. God's going to hold us accountable for doing that. So, yeah. Also, I think from a younger period, too, I mean, he had the influence, for instance, when God called out to him at a younger age. I mean, he actually had influences beyond just Eli and the, in the, in the, uh, Eli's kids. I mean, he actually had a direct relationship with God from the point you know So I think... That was part of the part of it too. Is you know, he was kind of more firm in the foundation, so that despite what Eli and the kids' best efforts, <laughs> but again, I would add to that by saying sure. he chose to do that, right? Yes, yes, exactly. because everybody else had the same the same choice. That's true, that's right? True. But the, the whole nation decides not to. Sam was the only one who did. know, <laughs> yeah. that's I'm saying. We're all on the same playing field here, so nobody has an advantage nor disadvantage at that point. Yeah, we, we want to look at it and say well they, you, you live in a, a very impoverished country so you have no, no chance of understanding God what's Jesus say it's more difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle actually being rich is a bigger curse than, <laughs> than being poor right but we want to look at it that way but that, again we have to understand God that's not the way God looks at it so we, we can't use that as an excuse which should really help us in terms of our, our sharing Jesus we don't share Jesus just with people that we, we, we think have a good background and would be likely to to accept Jesus. You just share it with everybody. The sower scatters the seed. And it falls on four different kinds of ground. He doesn't go over and pick up this the, the 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 seeds that fall on the, the, the hard rocky stuff and say, Well you'll never grow there. Just throw it. It might. It amazes me where weeds grow. Right? I was growing out of concrete for crying out loud. I'm not going to do that. I don't know. Pretty hardy stuff. You never know. So yeah, we're, we're all on the same playing field. I guess that's, what, what I meant by that is I guess by having that early on, he crumped he that. He helped let's right. do that. So despite everything growing up, he still had that with him. And it was the fact that he actually went with that. I, I think that's part of the wisdom of Solomon was you know, you know, tra- train your child in a way you should go and, and, and he will return to it. Right? so yeah I mean having that experience as, as a child may, may increase the odds but don't we read books and, and watch movies about people who had all the odds against them and 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 overcome that so we know that can happen in every every aspect of life it can also happen in in, in terms of the faith people that we would think had, had zero chance of ever ever understanding who God was and 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 follow Jesus become the best evangelist yeah no rhyme or reason to it so yeah his mother gave him to God yep but he was the one that had to make that choice to stick with God that's right everybody else did not stick with God they just went away from God but he he stuck with God including Eli's two sons (laughs) who had the exact same training right you see that's what I'm saying we're all on the same playing field at that point everybody's got, got, got the same options available we don't want to look at it that way we want to whine and complain about our upbringing or you know that you know whatever condition we find ourselves or as soon as i get a better job i'll believe in jesus or whatever you know we just use all these excuses and it it just none of that matters none of it matters yeah please since samuel grew up with eli being the head of the church Mm -hmm. would (laughs) would he have had access to um some scrolls or teachings or that type of thing yeah they, they would have been right right there in the not the temple but you know the the house of worship yes so he would have also I mean others had access to them and they chose not to precisely care but he also he would have known some of this stuff by being able to study so I, he, I would like to think yes Eli was, was going in there and picking them up and reading them on his own wasn't taught to do that he just if nothing else out of curiosity I wonder what this is And this room that up. nobody ever goes in <laughs> what yeah a yeah, room that nobody goes into uh, yeah absolutely So it starts with all your heart, not not just partial heart, not even ninety-nine percent heart. I want all your heart, I want I want all your knowledge, all your intellect, I want you to know who I am and understand who I am and and what I do. Then fast, weep, and mourn. But wait, there's more. See? That's what I'm saying. we, We have to show a tangible sign of our repentance. We can't just say I repent. God needs to see it. Go back to Samuel, verse 3. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Astaroths and commit these false idols you have replaced me with. Right? Get them out of here and serve me only. So don't create a void. Fill the void with me, God says. Get rid of the false idols and serve only me. That's the formula for repentance. Nothing short will work with God. Because it just means we're, we're trying to play games with God. We're trying to trick God. We're trying to uh, put on some facade before God. Now God God takes us very, very seriously. Since up to this point, everyone did as he saw fit. The end result of that is going to be one of two things. A, you're going to adopt other gods because you don't think the true God is sufficient. Or B, we'll make up our own gods. Anyway, look at it. We're replacing and substituting something else for the true God. And that's why the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me that's why they kept that in New York the remembrance of what God says he expects of us number one no other gods now the the astrofs. I went looking at Walmart for astrophs I couldn't find them <laughs> now the, these are, they're named anytime you see anything like that specific you know, oftentimes it just says you're, you're false gods generic when they're naming stuff that's what you need to perk up because they're, they're telling you something important here. And Astaroth is a figurine of the goddess of the Canaanites. Remember the Canaanites? They were the ones who used to occupy Israel. And we wipeth them out. F. Right? So, they're gone. But their gods remained. And so, believe it or not, from the people we defeated... We have adopted their goddess into the true religion of God. (laughs) Bad move. And that's why God was really bad about that and specifies that. So we have these lingering gods for generations. Now, just to show the depravity of everyone did as he saw fit. The goddess that they were adding as worship with God is the goddess of love and fertility. Sex. So now as part of the true Jewish religion they had houses of prostitution and instructed people that part of our religion is you must go in and have sex with these these uh, temple prostitutes. By the way, both, both male and female, so that we're not discriminating. See how bad it was? When you take God out of the equation, you can convince yourself, yep, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> right? Are you kidding? But that's what they did. Everyone did as they saw fit. So they chose to replace the true God with this goddess and encourage everyone to have sex with everyone. Hmm. That couldn't possibly happen today, could it? It's not only authorized in the religion, it is required. That's what Samuel is fighting against. And that's why it took 20 years to finally bring them to repentance. Samuel says, commit yourselves to the Lord. Now, in in Hebrew, it's it's kind of a play on words, which doesn't translate well into English, but really what he's saying is, fix your heart on God. Remember? Come with your whole heart. Fix your heart on God. Commit yourself loyalty to God requires a rejection of these other gods not some of the other gods not most of the other gods all other gods you shall have no other gods before me so the charge Samuel delivers is get rid of those other gods commit yourself to the Lord and then he says serve him only Now, serving God comes in a variety of ways. But most importantly, it begins with worship. Duh! Do we not refer to what we do Sunday morning as the worship service? Why do you think we call it that? Because that is our serving God. Commit yourself and serve God only. Serve the Lord by, first of all, humbling yourself and worshiping Him. So all this means is, I can't stress it enough, God is demanding exclusivity in our relationship. He expects exclusive devotion. It's not God, and occasionally I'm going to date another God. <laughs> Andy, is that going to work real well with, with risk? I mean, just... Just 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 one night a month, honey, I'd I would like to date another woman. What do you think, Chris? You in? <laughs> she, she gotta think about this a little bit. Right? <laughs> right? That's that's not what you would call devotion, right? That's something else entirely, but it's not devotion. It's not a commitment. So it doesn't matter what you call it. It's unacceptable in a relationship. It's unacceptable with God. That's all there is to it. Now, things are not looking good. They have multiple gods. They're having a lot of sex. And they're not worshiping the one true God. Things are not looking good. But the hopeful part of what Samuel is saying is that if you do these three things, he makes a nice list. Get rid of your false gods. Commit yourself to the Lord and serve Him only. Three things. Do that. Look what will happen. God will, quote, deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Right? But notice the order. God is not going to fulfill His end of the bargain on a promise from us. He knows us. (laughs) We're not really good with that, right? He's not going to say, well, you, you, yeah, I intend to do it someday, God, so go ahead and bless me now. Nope. Doesn't work that way. Do those three things first, and then God will take care of everything else for you. God is consistent with that throughout Scripture. He expects us to respond because we are the ones who abandoned Him in the first place. Now, Samuel's going to continue to reveal to the Israelites that yeah we've had a history of bad religious leaders that were corrupt and awful but nah, we all abandoned God we chose to replace God with other gods so we're all guilty we had bad leadership, yes but you see that's not an excuse Samuel was under the same leadership was he not? And he wasn't growing up in isolation. He was under the exact same culture as as everyone else. But God is incredibly patient. Now, just a little side note. The Israelites have the ark back. But they have not yet got rid of the Philistines. They're still hovering on the outskirts waiting to strike again and that's where we will bring it up next week the suspense of it all is just getting overwhelming to you isn't it it's just not a great story death and destruction and sex and everything it's just awesome